I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Three years ago this month, I sat down with Chastin Buttigieg in South Carolina to talk about his husband's historic presidential run and his role in it. Little did I know then that he was revealing what would appear six months later in his memoir, I Have Something to Tell You. Today, Buttigieg is out with a young adult's version of his memoir. Sadly, his timing couldn't be more perfect as LGBTQ people and works about their lives come under attack in school board meetings and state legislatures across the country. But he isn't shying away from telling his story. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on May 10th, Chastin Buttigieg talks about why he rewrote his memoir for young adults, why he thinks the far right is going after LGBTQ Americans, and what he hopes for his two children when they are old enough to read, I have something to tell you. I hope that the significance of the book actually fizzles, um, you know, with time, because I, I hope that we, we raise our children in a country where they don't have to be afraid of being who they are, where they don't have to fear running away from their family or losing their loved ones or their friends simply for existing and, and being who they are. So, Chastin, this isn't just an adaptation of your memoir for young adults. This is a rewrite. Why? Yeah, I wanted to write the book I wish I would have had in middle school. I wanted to write a book that I knew could help young people, their families and teachers have conversations about what it is like to grow up being different in America. Uh, Also a book that might be comforting uh, to younger people, teenagers who are, you know, just trying to survive middle school and high school. Um, and, and this is a book that in, in a way can help them understand that there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, it is okay to feel different. It's okay to feel like a fish out of water and outcast, but you're not defined by the opinions of other people and you're not defined by your surroundings the way I felt I was uh, growing up in Northern Michigan. So in the intro, I said, sadly, your timing could not be more perfect, but why, why did you feel that now was the time to put out this version of your memoir? Well, truth be told, I started writing this book over two years ago. So I did not, uh, you know, start writing this book and start writing an adaptation because of the political landscape. Uh, The political landscape actually caught up with me. Uh, So had no idea that it would be coming out uh, amidst this backslide uh, in equality and this rise in hatred and bigotry, uh, all of these anti-LGBTQ bills sweeping the country. But I'm glad that I will now be able to tour the country and talk about uh, what it is like uh, as an openly gay man in this country, uh, use my platform as an advocate, as a teacher, as a parent to have some of these really important conversations with folks uh, who need it the most right now. And right now you are on your, what is going to be an 18 stop nationwide book tour, but you're also going to places um, where the, where anti-LGBTQ plus fervor is, is happening. Utah, Florida, Texas, uh, um, Missouri. What do you think is motivating this backlash and what do you hope to achieve by going to these places? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, everyone kept saying it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. And that was true in a way. I actually think it's getting worse right now because it got better. Uh, We were seeing more achievements in equality. Uh, We achieved great things like marriage equality. I never thought growing up that I would ever be able to get married or, or have a family to adopt. But I think because life was actually improving in in some small ways and some big ways for the LGBTQ community, 
now the the right feels so emboldened to make it worse. Um, and I and I do believe that a lot of the rhetoric is far removed from what's actually going on on the ground. You know, in places like my hometown in northern Michigan, where I'm about to have a sold out event on Friday with 650 people, I can't imagine growing up ever thinking that 650 people would go to a book talk about uh, a person growing up gay in northern Michigan. So I think some of the rhetoric is removed from uh, the reality of you know people's opinions and values. Um, but I think the right is uh, emboldened to continue to attack the, the LGBTQ community because they know it works. Uh, they threw everything at the wall. They wanted to see what would stick. And unfortunately, it's LGBTQ people again. So mm -hmm. there's a litany of things that they could be focusing on real world issues that would improve people's lives across the country. But it's easier for them to just go on the attack and demonize LGBTQ people rather than rolling up their sleeves and, and doing work that would actually affect change and improve people's lives. You know, to your point about opinions being removed from, from the reality, we have a, 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 uh, an audience question from Jeremy Capel in Illinois who wants the tea, Chastin, when you meet conservative members of Congress or the media, are they courteous, civil, anyone surprisingly friendly or supportive? Hmm. You know, the, the corners of Washington that I occupy are usually my house and Target, maybe Trader Joe's. So I'm not running <laughs> into a ton of uh, uh, members on the other side. But I will say that, you know, there are over 400 members of Congress. And I think there are a lot of people who come to Washington in good faith to do good work, uh, to actually try to affect change and, and bring uh, progress back home to their districts. But you don't hear about them a lot uh, because the folks sucking up all the oxygen uh, are these, these characters who are so power hungry and media hungry that they'll use people like the LGBTQ community uh, as a scapegoat because they don't have anything to offer. I can't think of any time where I've I've run into someone and have been you know blown away by their courtesy, um, but I will say that I have uh, met some really incredible folks on our side of the aisle uh, who I hadn't known before because you know they're not being featured on late night TV every week. So it is inspiring to meet people who are just there to do the job, um, and and I I wonder about the the listeners question if I were to actually bump into some of these people on the street, how, how they would behave. And I'm guessing that, um, you know, they would they would know to be respectful and, and treat another person as a human being. But if there weren't any cameras around, you know, would they be motivated to? So, well, well, maybe maybe you'll find out one one day, Chasson. So let's talk about let's dive into into your childhood. Let's, let's talk about your early childhood and your family. Where did you grow up and what did you do for fun? So I grew up in uh, Traverse City, Michigan. I grew up on the outside of Traverse City, Michigan. I was a 4-H kid. So from a young age, uh, oh my gosh, look at this photo. Um, <laughs> you climb, you're not climbing a tree. It looks like a tree stump. There's another one of you in a- I'm, um, I'm um, tree. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love you know, that picture with the power pose. Yeah, this kid, a uh, lot of power poses. But yeah, we were a, a 4-H family, a tight-knit family. My parents really valued hard work, working outdoors. My dad owns a landscaping company. So my parents really valued hard work uh, from a very young age. Um, so they, they were very encouraging when it came to uh, my extracurricular activities. Uh, I found theater 
from a young age, which helped, which helped me sort of escape uh, my reality and all of the negative thoughts going on in my head. I could go play pretend on stage and, and play a character. Uh, so I love theater from a young age, which my parents supported, I was on the bowling team. Uh, and as you saw, raised a lot of cows in 4-H. <laughs> right, right. Among, the, among the various pictures we, we just showed you on the pontoon, the parapose with the one leg up on the tree stump, um, uh, there was one with you and a cow with ribbons on it. So you were, a, you were not just a 4-H kid, you were a prize-winning 4-H kid. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I write in the book about how I really leaned into 4-H, that I was convinced that I could distract people from, you know, maybe figuring out the secret about me if I just excelled at everything they thought that I should do. So in 4-H, I took it really seriously. Uh, you know, I would go to showmanship classes and, uh, you know, try to win the blue ribbons because I thought that might distract people from my difference. And if people were to find out about, uh, you know, my difference, then at least they would be impressed, you know, that I was academically gifted or I was good at 4-H or, you know, I had a good bowling average. Like I was convinced that I could distract everybody. Um, by you know, really leaning in and excelling. Right. It's it it, it it's our, our affliction um, as LGBTQ people, or since we're two out gay men here, the the drive for perfection uh, as a way of of deflecting. In your in, in your book, you write about Matthew Shepard, um, who at the time is a twenty one year old gay man whose 1998 murder in Laramie, Wyoming shocked the nation. How did it impact your journey from being in the closet to eventually coming out? Yeah, so in 1998, I was, what, nine, 10 years old, and just starting to sort of understand what was going on. I didn't really have the vocabulary for it. Um, and then Matthew Shepard happened. And I remember how much of a story it was. And it it sort of showed me from a very young age, you know, this is what happens to gay people in this country. This is this is what might happen to you if this thing that you you believe is happening is true. And so it really it scared me uh, from a very young age. So many I didn't really have a lot of queer role models. I didn't have a lot of people to look up to. I certainly didn't have anybody in my life that was showing me that gay people can be successful and happy. They can contribute to their community. You know, you can grow up and have a career, a family, you can find love. And most of the stories that I was seeing uh, were similar to Matthew Shepard's that uh, gay people are often the victim or the butt of the joke. Um, and that, that, that stuck with me for a long time. You know, when um, we sat down three years ago in in South Carolina, um, well, before that, talk before I bring that up, talk about how you came out to your family and what happened. Sure, I thought this was a really important story to tell. Um, I I was not a victim of the common trope that you you know you come out, your parents say, "No son of mine, get out of my house." I grew up believing for 18 years that something inside of me was broken, that that I was at fault. Um, and I was so scared of embarrassing my family. Uh, you know, my my parents are upstanding citizens in their community. My dad has a very well-known local business. What if 
what if they lose their business? What if they lose their friends? I was convinced that I would lose my friends, my family, and bring great shame upon them once I came out. So when I did come out, I, I wrote a letter to my mom apologizing. Um, I gave it to her and then I, and then I ran. I had already had my pa bags packed and, and I left and I couch surfed for a while with friends um, uh, and, you know, would occasionally sleep in the back of my car when I thought I was too much of a burden on, on my friends and people who were, you know, blowing up an air mattress in their living room for me to crash on. Um, but the reason I love telling my parents' story is, you know, they're the fact that I'm alive. They saved my life. They called me home. Um, they had no idea what it was like to raise a gay kid, especially in a place like Northern Michigan at the time. Um, but they cared more about me and keeping me alive than um, anything else. So I went back home and, and we figured it out. We had the hard conversations and my parents are tremendous allies now. Um, it meant a lot, you know, to have them back in my life. Um, so there's a, there's a rainbow at the end of that story, you know, there's a mm -hmm. happy ending. And, and I want to tell more people the story of my parents because they really did save my life and parents around the country right now who might be terrified or scared for their kids, just know how much power is in your words and your actions. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Let me read that. So here's what I was going to, to read from um, our interview three years ago. Here's what you said. When you're a teenager, the way you're thinking about that issue is not like, well, my parents love me unconditionally. So purely they're going to so surely they're going to be fine with it. It's society keeps telling me that I am a failure. I'm a disappointment. I'm a disgrace. I'm going to break the hearts of my family. So I better get out before I break their hearts. So I just ran. Um, then you tell the story that you, you just told. But here's the key, and this is what I wrote in the column. As Chaston recounted this period, his eyes brimming with tears, I turned to see his mother wiping away tears of her own. To see that, to see those, those really beautiful words about your parents in action, in real time during that interview is something I will never forget. Oh, that's really special. Um, that makes me tear up now. Um, I'm so grateful for their love, you know, that, um, I, I tell parents on the, on the road now, you know, your kids can really benefit from a 10 second conversation. All it, all it would have took, you know, is 10 seconds when I was younger to say, we love you no matter what, no matter who you love, you know, whether you're gay, straight, anything, you know, we will love you. We will support you. You will always have a home here. And I was so terrified of disappointing them. Um, and of course they loved me. Of course they supported me. Um, but so, so grateful that my story had that happy ending because I have met countless people um, who didn't have that happy ending, um, who, who didn't get to go home to their parents, uh, who, who've never spoken to them again, who, who lost everything. 
And I know how lucky I am to still have them in my corner. So you mentioned before, you, you set out to write the book you wish you had had when you were coming out. As you're, you're on your, your now second book tour, because this is the young adults version, you went on a book tour uh, three years ago when um, the hardcover edition came out. Plus, there was all the touring around the country uh, during the 2020 presidential campaign. What are people saying to you as you're traveling around the country um, as an out gay man who is taking, being very vocal about being who you are, but also standing up for other people within the LGBTQ plus community who might not feel like they have a voice? Yeah, there are, usually after these events, it's sort of a pinch me moment. Um, I certainly never thought that I would get to be this person uh, or grow up to be this kind of advocate or, or you know, well-known. Um, and we had an event last night where uh, this person was sharing with me how they came from a very Catholic family, um, still don't speak with their family, um, ran away from their family, you know, hasn't talked to them in years. And I have these connections with people almost every day where someone shares with you what it means to either meet you or hear from you or to listen to your story and feel a sense of connection. For me on the campaign trail, like I, I, I've talked with you before, I think there is great power in vulnerability. I think in politics, we are expected to, you know, sort of put up a facade um, to not talk about our feelings, our emotions, our, our, our weaknesses or our fears, because it might make us look like a, a weaker figure. And I disagree with that. I think when we share our vulnerabilities and we share our stories, it helps other people feel a connection. So while it can be hard sometimes to, to go out there and every night share some of these you know, childhood traumas um, or stories, then I meet people like that in the book signing line who have felt seen, who for an hour felt like somebody understood them, who, who shared you know, a fraction of their story. And that means so much to me because if we can all find ways to do that for one another, then we just infuse so much more goodness in the world. Um, when we when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open, we allow other people to feel connected. Um, and I think that's one of the most important things that we we can do. Um, so for me, as the author, as the advocate and speaker, that that's what I get to do right now. Uh, and that means a lot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I'd, I ask this question of of a lot of people who go from being private citizen to public figure and public figure in a way where people come up to you come up to you and don't just say, you know, oh, I, I love your work or I love your movie, but who you are means so much to me and here's why. And then they tell you some of the most intimate personal things that anyone could share with another human being. I'm just wondering, how do you handle that weight? The weight of other people's emotions? and feelings. Yeah, and I and I say this with all good intention. I used to feel burdened by that because I would I would take it on. I would carry that weight with me throughout the day thinking about this person's pain and I would I would view it from from a sense of trying to just empathize with the pain. And 
I started to think about how when someone opens up to you like that, it's not that you have to like get down in the trenches with them and feel heartbroken as well. It's actually a gift that someone sees something in you that allows them to be vulnerable. Um, and sometimes when I you know run into someone at the grocery store or at Target or just walking the kids in the park, and then they they can't even find the words. They're just tearing up and they, and they don't know what to say. And you know they can maybe sputter out a sentence or something and you can just say i know i know like it it's okay and thanks for saying hello and what a gift it is that you've done something right in your life that allows somebody else to walk a little bit higher to to feel like somebody cares about them and so now it's 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 always very touching um and instead of allowing sort of that uh um that pain to, to permeate in a way that brings you down as well. I just view it as an opportunity to connect with somebody else and to thank them for, for sharing that with me. Um, and to know that sometimes when we're confused, are you doing the right thing? Are you using your platform the right way? Are you saying the right things? Are you speaking up for everyone in the right way? Sometimes it is comforting to know that just by existing, just by living your life openly and proudly, um, that in a way is enough for other people. That's just so beautifully said. Um, Chaz, we have another audience question from Janet Reed in Indiana. She asks, do you miss the Midwest or is it comforting to live in a more progressive, diverse and tolerant part of the country? Thanks for the question, Janet. Uh, so we sort of split our time between Michigan and, and DC. The thing that surprises me the most about Traverse City, my hometown where we now live, is how much it has progressed. And so being in DC with the kids is great. You know, there are so many beautiful parks and playgrounds and museums and, and opportunities to infuse their little lives uh, with culture in that way. But being home and being part of that progress is so important to me. I am a Midwestern boy through and through. Um, I was just describing Culver's to someone here in San Francisco yesterday, and it made me realize that like the Midwest is the right place for me to be. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with the Butterburger chain, Jonathan, but I miss my Midwestern no. food. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was at a restaurant and they didn't have ranch dressing. I was like, you know what? I got to be in the Midwest for the rest of my life. Um, but I love, love, love being part of that progress back home. And the thing about growing up in a place like Michigan is I think we all thought as young people, we had to get as far away from it as possible, that the only successful path was the one that was out of Traverse City. And I love that our family is there now. Uh, my, my big extended family is all in Northern Michigan. Uh, most of them are in Northern Michigan. And I love being part of that community. Uh, I think it's just in my blood. And while I appreciate many aspects of DC, uh, I think the Midwest is where I'm meant to be. I've got to squeeze in two more questions before we have to let you go. There's a fun note about the book. Ariana DeBose, the first out queer woman of color to win an Oscar, wrote the foreword yeah. for, your, for this edition of the book. How'd that come about? Flattered. Um, I love Ariana. Uh, I got to meet her and we, we got to talking about this story and how we both found theater and performance as an escape, uh, as a queer person growing up in an environment that told us to keep that Part of ourselves hidden uh, and she agreed to write the forward and i was extremely flattered and i thought it was really important to share 
uh, a similar story, but a very different story. So Ariana DeBose, queer Afro-Latina woman, uh, writing a forward about how we can all share some similarities um, in, in, in both of our stories is a person leaning into their difference um, and, and excelling by leaning into what makes them different. And uh, we both believe that what makes you different makes you powerful. So that was such a beautiful forward and I was so flattered that she agreed to do it. And um, you, you, you mentioned being a father and the, and the kids, Penelope and Gus, how's fatherhood going? Fatherhood changed everything. It certainly highlighted the mission of the book. Now, what do I want to say, not only as a teacher, as a gay man, but uh, as a dad? And they just, they, they, they bring everything into focus. Everything seems clearer in life. Um, my, my mission as a writer, my mission as a father, as an advocate, because I'm thinking about what I'm leaving behind. And, and uh, I always feel the ticking of the clock in the back of my head that, you know, they're only getting older and I only have so much time to try to make things better. Um, and they, they, they've just changed everything. And I, I love them so, so much and I'm missing them on the road right now. Well, that that actually dovetails nicely with the next question I was going to ask is because you're on an on an 18, 18 stop book tour. Um, if you're on the book tour, does that mean Penelope and Gus are running roughshod over Secretary Pete? <laughs> yes. So uh, I think it's a, a division of labor. The the grandparents are so excited to have this time, um, ah. and. Uh, uh, Pete is definitely pulling his fair share, but I think I've, you know, I've, I've been in his corner for quite a few years. So, you know, he can, he can step up a little bit. God love him. <laughs> Wait, one, one more seriously. And then, and then yeah. I'll leave you be, um, who's the, who's the good cop and who's the bad cop when it comes to, uh, oh. Penelope and Gus? Oh yeah. I'm the bad cop for sure. But I think <laughs> maybe it will change, but you know, I have my background in education. Uh, I'm a Montessori certified teacher. So I have all of these ideas about, you know, what I want their childhood to be like, what I want the playroom to be like. And sometimes I go a little too far and I get too worried about it. But I grew up with little kids and I became a teacher and I've just, you know, spent most of my career working with young people. Pete didn't. And so uh, sometimes I, I have to be the one, you know, to, to step in and, and set the boundaries. Um, but they they do. Um, they run all over him. They love snacks. So they say snack and they'll run to the cupboard and, you know, point snack, snack. And then I, I swear to God, every time I go in the kitchen, he's like handing them a snack. Like, well, they asked I'm like, well, of course they asked. <laughs> you know, they're a year and a half old. They would love a snack all the time. You know, uh, I swear this is the this is the last question. This is what happens when you and I get yeah, together. We just keep we just keep talking. Um, when when Penelope and Gus are, you know, certified young adults, and they read, "I have something to tell you," what do you hope they get from it? Not to be too emotional about it. Um... I thought a lot about this when I was writing it. You know, I started writing it and um, a year in they were born and it sort of changed everything. Um, my mom lost her father when she was quite young. And I think about that a lot. What would happen if I weren't here? Um, and in writing the book, I kept thinking about would Gus and Penelope be comforted by the words that I wrote? Would they mean something to them one day? And then would they be proud of me for having written it? Um, and that just, that just sort of made the mission a lot clearer. 
um, and, and highlighted the importance of the work. And so I do hope that we, we get to the day where books like this, the political weight of a book like this and the, the importance of conversations like this might not matter as much. They might wonder, why was it so hard for you and Papa? Why, why, why were people so focused on your love and our family rather than solving other problems? So I hope that the significance of the book actually fizzles um, you know, with time, because I, I hope that we, we raise our children in a country where they don't have to be afraid of being who they are, where they don't have to fear running away from their family or losing their loved ones or their friends simply for existing and, and being who they are. So um, I hope they find comfort in these words one day, but I hope they won't be, I hope the importance of these words won't, um, I guess, matter as much in the future because maybe we'll have, we'll have done it. We'll have achieved a future where everyone feels like they belong um, and will be loved for exactly who they are. Chastin Buttigieg, author of I Have Something to Tell You. Thank you so much for coming back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. It's always great to see you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.